Welcome to Taking Control of Your Financial Life podcast, providing the simple answers to the complex questions asked about your financial future. Let's get you the answers you need about retirement, investing, asset planning, and the current market. Here's your host, Julian Rubenstein. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Taking Control of Your Financial Life. My name is Julian Rubenstein, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm also the president of American Asset Management, a registered investment advisor located in Boca Raton. I'm very excited about today's show as we have Jason Neufeld from Elder Needs Law, who serves all of Florida, discussing Medicaid planning, how to not have to pay medical expenses, and uh, some estate planning. So it's going to be a very interesting show because I think it's going to be very timely for a lot of my clients and listeners of the show. So with that, let's give a big round of applause and welcome to Jason. Thank you very much, Julian. Nice to have you. As I said to you when we first met, very prescient about what you do because I had a client call me and pose the problem that he has that you can solve. Yep. But without stealing your thunder, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and let's get started. Yeah, so uh, Jason Neufeld, the firm is Elder Needs Law. We focus on really three main areas. There are, there are two of those areas your listeners are probably well familiar with, right? There's estate planning, that's your wills, your trust, your powers of attorney, essentially who can make decisions for you when you're unable to make decisions for yourself, who gets your stuff after you pass away. There's probate. For those who have not done proper planning, they sometimes have to go through the court system and we uh, can guide guide people through that process as well if they don't have their assets in a is formed efficiently so that it goes to the next generation without having to go to court. So that's probate, that's estate planning. What we do that's a little bit different, a little bit more nuanced is something called Medicaid planning. And if I could sum it up in, in one line, it would be asset protection for the middle class, right? So if you are a multimillionaire, you can well afford to pay for your long-term care, whether it's at home or whether it's in a facility. If you're indigent, you likely already qualify for these programs that can help you. And it's everyone in the middle, right? It's the working class, the middle class, the people who may or may not own their home. And on top of that have maybe between $250,000 and $750,000, and they realize very quickly that long-term care at home or in a facility is very expensive. And so what I'm able to do is legally and ethically protect my client's assets so they don't have to go broke first, they don't have to sell their house, they don't have to wait five years, and we can get them help in the near future paying for long-term care and other medical expenses. Okay. Um, I'm familiar with that a little bit, but why don't you, um, you know, expand upon that and tell it, like, for example, I have a client who called me today. Um, his wife is very ill. Mm-hmm. She either needs a home care or she needs to go into a nursing home or possibly yeah. living. Right. And he's asking, how do I get the government to pay for that so I don't have to go broke? So what's yeah. the answer? Yeah. yeah. So the answer is it depends, as is often the case in the law. Uh, so when, when we are talking to a client, we have an intake form that everyone has to fill out before they talk to one of our attorneys because um, Medicaid in Florida treats different assets differently. So they only allow you to have $2,000 in what they consider to be countable assets, but not all assets are countable. Like for example, 
IRAs, 401ks, other qualified retirement plans, if they're paying out in regular distributions or required minimum distributions, that doesn't count as an asset. So sometimes that's hundreds of thousands of dollars that we can take off the board in terms of figuring out how we're going to protect assets. So money in the bank, money in uh, you know stocks, regular stocks, bonds, anything that's non-tax qualified is going to be an issue. And if we have a spouse who they themselves don't need Medicaid, it actually is a little bit easier because they're allowed to have a certain amount of assets in their name without being penalized. But when there's excess assets, despite all those allowances, then we have work to do. And it just depends on what the, you know, there's no one size fits all options. Sometimes it's special needs trust that we're dealing with. Sometimes it's um, something called a personal services contract where we're able to pay family members a lump sum for the services that they're providing anyway. There's, we have Medicaid compliant annuities. Sometimes there's real estate investments that we're making because there's certain ways that real estate can be deemed a non-countable asset. So there's multiple options. And during our consultation, everything I do is pros and cons. I always tell people I don't have a magic wand solution. There's not one thing that is better than the others. But we, based on how your assets are allocated, we talk about these different potential solutions. And based on the client's feedback, we can tailor an asset protection plan that is going to minimize or eliminate the drawbacks and get the client access to the benefits at home or in a facility. I thought I might be wrong. I thought the if the assets are joint, let's just make believe it's a half a million dollars. Yeah. But, and let's assume the wife is ill. I thought you could move the money to the husband legally and he just refuses to pay the medical bills and that was legal. Yeah, you can. You can do that. In fact, that's called spousal refusal. That has its own set of drawbacks as well. And it only is, you really don't want to abuse that technique because what happens is when you do that, which you're allowed to do, and the spouse refuses to make their assets available to the sicker spouse, they also, the sick spouse, has to sign an assignment of support rights to the state of Florida, essentially giving the state of Florida the ability, if they so choose, to sue the well spouse and demand support on behalf of wow. the sicker spouse, right? So there are situations where that makes a lot of sense. And, and by the way, the state of Florida does not have a history of using that, right? They don't, but it still makes people uneasy that they even have the ability to. So we want to make sure we're doing it in a way that makes sense, in a way where we're not going to tempt the state to take a look at it and go, These, this is a rich copper that we're clearly abusing the system. This is the case that we want to go after, right? So it depends on, cer- on certain situations it will make sense, other situations it won't make sense. I see. And I, know, I think the other way is you can give it away to your kids, but there's a five-year look-back period. Am I right about that? So I'm glad you brought that up because the five-year look-back period is the most misunderstood concept in my world. So you cannot just give it to your kids within five years. That would be considered a gift. And if that is done within five years, it would result in a penalty depending on the size of the gift. There are ways of getting money to the kids. For example, the personal services contract that I mentioned before, that would be a formal contract signed between one or more of the children and the the, the, the parent seeking benefits. And the idea is very typically we have the adult children who are doing work anyway, 
on behalf of their parent, not because they expect to get paid for work, but because, you know, they're good. that's what good sons and daughters do for their parents. They're already managing their life. They're already paying their bills. They're already driving them to the doctor. Or they're already, you know, they're making sure that they're, 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 they're their parents' advocates. Well, what we can do is we can calculate a fair market value of that contract, right? And we will put it into a contract. And then after the contract is signed, then a lump sum of money can be transferred to one or more of the adult children. Now, again, that's not without its risks because or drawbacks. So first of all, that payment is going to be one large lump sum, often in the six figures, that is income to the child, right? They're a paid caregiver. The IRS doesn't care. They happen to be related to the person that they're being paid to take care of, right? So they can lose a chunk of that money to the IRS, you know, in one fell swoop, essentially. The other issue, and again, sometimes this will make sense, sometimes it won't, is once it is in the child's hands, it's their money, subject to anything that's a threat to their money. Right. If they get divorced, if they die, if they have creditors go through bankruptcy, right, anything, it's now their money. So it's not in a way it's not safe for the parent. Right. So, again, the right situation that will still make sense to use as at least part of a strategy. It may in certain situations not make sense at all, or it may make sense to use that in conjunction with other asset protection strategies. Right. Okay. Because I, why, I was under the impression that you could move from the ill spouse to the healthy spouse, mm-hmm. put the, the ill spouse in a nursing home, and then just say, well, she's on her own. But you're saying the state might come back and, and sue. They have the, in certain situations, it's going to be highly unlikely that would ever happen. But you, you cannot enter into the spousal refusal strategy without a corresponding signing and assignment of support rights where you give the state the ability to do that. Now, when you go into a nursing home, you can't go in and you have to go in as a paying patient, and then you can do that afterwards, correct? You don't want to do that first. It depends. Some nursing facilities will allow you to go in as what's called Medicaid pending, where um, they will accept you as a resident knowing that you're applying for Medicaid and then they'll eventually get their payment. Meaning if here we are in June, if someone goes into the facility in June and we submitted an application and we expect them to be approved because they're otherwise eligible, it might not get approved until July or August, but it would then be, the benefits will be retroactive back to June. Okay. So the other way that makes it a little bit easier is if you are, In a hospital, if you're hospitalized an inpatient for three days, what happens is if you are discharged from the hospital to a skilled nursing facility or nursing home, Medicare, what everyone gets when they turn 65, will pay up to 100 days of that facility bill. It's 20 days in full, days 21 through 100, so the remaining 80 days, there might be a daily copay, and it depends on your supplement or advantage plan. Sometimes you don't have a copay, sometimes you do, but, but there can be a daily copay up to 100 days. And what that does is it makes, it gives you many more options because every skilled nursing facility wants Medicare. They all accept Medicare. They all want it. They know that, you know, it makes it very easy to find a facility. And what happens is while you're on your Medicare days, we can be doing our work to get you protect what you have and get you eligible for Medicaid. Now, I and they, one, yeah. they don't love Medicaid, right? They get paid a lot less. 
It depends on the facility. I think the ones that are, you know, 98% full would rather have people who are privately paying. And the ones that are 70% full are going to be fine because Medicaid is just a source of money and the government pays on time. But yes, I think if if every nursing home administrator had their had their way, it would be 100% fold with privately paying patients. But that's not realistic. And every nursing facility in the state of Florida must accept Medicaid. So they're all, some people go, well, I don't want to go to a nursing home that accepts Medicaid because it's a lower level facility. And I go, well, they're all Medicaid nursing homes. They all accept Medicaid. I see. So you can go like to a place like Moss as a Medicaid, getting Medicaid. Yeah. The difference is assisted living facilities, that lower level, you know, which is not as high of a level of care as a nursing home, then they have the choice. They're not required to accept Medicaid. Some of them, there are plenty of fine facilities who do, but not all of them will accept Medicaid. So you have I, thought, I thought Medicaid won't pay for assisted living. It depends on the facility. And if the facility is licensed with Medicaid, depending on where you are in the state of Florida, Medicaid will pay typically between $1,500 and $1,900 per month okay, for right. the facility. Right. Yeah, but like nursing homes are probably what, more like five or 6000 In nursing homes, the deal is your income goes to the facility and then Medicaid pays the full difference. That's a good deal because in a nursing facility, those are like the ten, eleven, twelve thousand dollar per month facilities. So if you get Medicaid paying, you know, eight, nine, ten grand a month, you're pretty happy with that. And the biggest nursing home is the problem that they kind of look at them more like a luxury, right? So they don't you, you really gotta come out of pocket for that. For assisted living facilities, you mean? Yeah. 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 So it depends. Again, there are the higher end facilities. Well, they don't accept Medicaid at all. They only accept private pay. There's no world in which they'll accept. But there are plenty of nice facilities that go and Medicaid may not pay for everything. So if you're in a, a facility that accepts $1,800 a month from Medicaid, the resident has to come up with the rest. And so, so they're pri- partially being privately paid and partially getting funding from Medicaid. Got it. So let me ask you, um, how did you start get into this type of law? Like, Ron, tell us where, how you started. <laughs> I actually started out as a personal injury lawyer, and I'm, I'm still, uh, my father's a personal injury lawyer, and I'm still affiliated with, with that firm, but I don't practice personal injury law uh, anymore. So I, I tell you that because I wound up representing a lot of elderly people, and I started noticing that a lot of my elderly clients who have been injured needed to be in these long-term care facilities that are quite expensive. And even though we might've done a good job as a personal injury lawyer, getting them in this nice big settlement or verdict, um, that a lot of that money would eventually be lost to the facility. And then when I learned you could protect these assets and get Medicaid to pay for a lot of it, it was kind of like a light bulb, you know, this, this revelation to me, I go, wow, there's a real, um, need for this in South Florida, and there are not a lot of attorneys doing it. So I started going to the conferences and reading the books, and um, you know, finding finding my mentors. And here I am now, ten years later. You know, this is uh, this is I kind of found my passion. I found something that, again, is I'm, I'm serving an underserved community. There's a lot of people who don't know that what I do exists, including lawyers, which is why I love coming on shows like this. And I love presenting to churches and synagogues and rotary clubs and caregiver support groups, because I like to let people know that you don't have to go broke. You don't have to sell your house. You don't have to wait until you lose everything to qualify for these benefits. There's ways to get this stuff taken care of now. And it's become a real passion project of mine. Is there any 
uh, pre-planning advice you give to everyone that, that they should start with or just wait till it happens? Well, there's a few ways to look at that. So the first thing is I tell people that the, of all the fancy trusts and planning strategies that I have, there's nothing more valuable that I can provide to my clients than a well-drafted, durable power of attorney. Because a lot of people think those are one-size-fits-all documents that you can just download off the internet for free. And what happens is even the ones you download for free, they're partially good and they're partially ineffective. What I mean by that is in Florida, for a power of attorney to let someone act on your behalf, it has to be very specific. Meaning you can't just say, I give my son the ability to do everything for me so help me God, right? That is not allowed anymore. So when we are protecting assets and we're getting into our fancier, more complicated strategies, these generic boilerplate powers of attorney are might be fine for doing things like banking and paying bills, but they're not good enough for me to do what I need to do, right? To, to, to really get, to get people access to all the planning strategies we have available. So that's the first thing. The second is if they have the wherewithal. This is typically my clients who have had a parent who's had Alzheimer's or they know it runs in the family and, and things like that. If they have five years, if they know they're not going to need care or un, very unlikely to need care in the next five years. So these are typically my clients and they'll be healthy, maybe in their mid-70s, maybe late 70s, but very healthy. We can utilize what's called an irrevocable trust where we can get assets out of their name and take advantage of the fact that there's only a five-year look-back period. So if we get assets out of their name, we get that clock ticking, then after five years, whatever's in that irrevocable trust is invisible as far as Medicaid is concerned. And you know they can have that irrevocable trust with a financial advisor like yourself who can then work to having it grow and flourish and really be a nice-sized asset. Um, but anything in there would be invisible after five years. So that's a really nice way for the people, again, who are thinking ahead about these things to say, hey, because what my sweet spot really is not including my client's house. They typically have between $100,000 and $700,000. That's like where I'm providing the most value. When they're worth more than that, we can still help, but there's a diminishing return. It starts to make less sense, right? Because of the tax implications of other, the other drawbacks that go with Medicaid planning. But for the clients who have, you know, again, 700, a million, $2 million, million, which is a lot of money, but not, you know, wealthy, quote unquote, then utilizing that irrevocable trust can make a ton of sense of getting, again, not everything, but a lot of assets out of their name. And then when they come to me and they have, a quarter million dollars, $300,000 left, protecting that within a matter of months is very easy to do. So that's a very, I know, a long-winded answer. I think the only issue with the trust is you have to trust, and it's hard, you have to trust that you're giving your money away and that your kids are going to take care of you. It's easier said than done. It is a, you're absolutely right, because you do lose, that. now what happens is you lose direct control over the assets and the irrevocable trust, but you can hire and fire the trustees, meaning if you 
hire your, you know, if you say, okay, my, my son, who's going to be the trustee and manage this stuff. And if the son really isn't doing what they're supposed to do, while you as the client can't access the money directly, you can fire the son and move, get someone else in there. Who's going to be thinking more about your interest. But I agree. It's a total, you, you, you don't want, you don't want to, rely on that. You want to have the, the trust managed by someone who you do in fact trust and know has your best interest at heart, which not everybody has. I thought in trust, you can't have someone that you control, such as a child or a spouse, be the trustee. Not a spouse, but yes, a child, very often a child. I see. You can't have a child and you can and you can retain because I always thought you had a thing called a, a trust protector that you could replace. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. the, I mean, yep. it's not really complicated. Yeah, we can put in trust protectors. Absolutely. And for, I just had one client who they had like a little over, I think they had like something like $1.5 million liquid. And we took about a million dollars and we put it into an irrevocable trust. They didn't have anyone that they believed would do a nice job for them. So we wound up bringing in a professional fiduciary. Like, uh, I don't want to name names, but it's, you know, yeah. there are these. And they're expensive, but unfortunately, you know, the thing I've been looking at, which I'm sure you, are you familiar with the, uh, what is it, the Wyoming cocktail? So what is the mm-hmm. cowboy cocktail? What, what is it? Cowboy cocktail. It's, no, I don't know. What is that? So Wyoming is the it only. sounds delicious. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm joking. <laughs> Wyoming is the only state that allows you to do a a self-settled trust and remain the trustee. And the way they get around that is it's a very complicated um, way of doing things, but you appoint a trustee in Wyoming that you own. Mm. So it's it's like a shield, but you still are controlling all the assets. It's very complicated. Interesting. It it seems to work, but it's very expensive. You know, it it, it, it costs around fifteen thousand dollars a year to maintain. Yeah. Yeah. To your point, you can't do that when you have a million dollars. Correct. You know. Correct. It's uh, we've been trying, we've been learning a lot about trust with all these podcasts, and you know, there's there's a million ways to protect yourself depending on what you're trying to protect yourself from. I think what you're doing is the best. Most of my clients and listeners just don't want to go broke paying for their medical care. That's, that's right. Really, that's really what it's at. They don't want to lose their home. They want to have something to pass on to their heirs. And so we're able to make it more likely that that will happen. Right. Yep. So what do you wish you knew, knew when you started that you know today? I'll, I'll give you an example. Like yeah. I know now, what I did know when I started is when you're young, never worry about losing money in the stock market because it's <laughs> an impossibility right? If so long as you have a long enough time horizon. So that's an example of what I mean, but what I wish I knew then that I knew now. You know, I like to tell people that the, the, you know, typically I am mostly dealing with the adult children of my actual client, right? They're, they're worried about mom or dad and they want their, they have power of attorney already and they want to help, help them take control. And, And what I'm always trying to tell them sometimes unsuccessfully is as I say, listen, long-term care is by far the biggest threat to your assets, to everybody's assets. We don't think about it because while we're young, we're not thinking about getting sick, but as you get older, that will be the biggest threat to your assets. So I'm looking at my, the, you know, the 40 something, 50 something, maybe even young sixties. And I'm going, Hey, I don't know what Medicaid's going to be like in 20, 30 years from now. It may be great. They may do away with it altogether. Who the heck knows? Go get, while you're, don't stick your head in the sand, go get yourself long-term care insurance or a life insurance policy with a long-term care rider or something like that. Take action now to protect yourself so you don't need Medicaid or you're less likely to need Medicaid in the future. So um, 
I say that as my story because um, I, I'm now in my mid-40s. I waited a little bit longer than I should have to go buy long-term care insurance. Now I have it just because of what I do. I see like how important it is. And I go, man, I wish I got that when I was 35. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I, I kind of take the other side of that argument. Um, yeah. I just feel that it's so expensive. Like I have a client, his right. parents just turned 85. Yep. They're going to use their long-term care. Yep. But when you looked at how much they have paid in yes. over the last 40 years, right. they can't live long enough to, to, uh, to, to, get, to get their money back. But the argument there, which is maybe a reason why you do have it, if you have the discipline to say, instead of spending this 1000 or 3000 or whatever the right. premium, I'm truly right. going to put it, in a right. town and not look at it, then right. I'm, but the yeah. are, you're not going to do that. And now right. you're going to turn 85 and not have the money. So well, that, I like, I like a hybrid yeah. model of that. I like a hybrid version of that, which is, I agree with you. Traditional long-term care insurance is prohibitively expensive for, for most people. What I like is these life insurance products that have the long-term care rider because they're affordable. Now they're not. So, so what happens is as you get older, you can access a higher percentage of the death benefit. Got it. And, and it has a cash accrual component. So it's guaranteed 4% a year, which, you know, isn't, you know, you're getting better returns than that, but you know, it's like a nice conservative CD better than what I'm getting in my savings account. So I like that there's this cash accumulation component. And I like that no matter what, somebody's benefiting from this policy and my premiums can't go up. So either I'm going to use it when I get older or my kid, my wife or kids are going to inherit it because I passed away because there's a death benefit. So I, that's what I like about it. No matter what, someone is going to benefit from this. But I agree with you that in terms of the traditional long-term care insurance, while probably providing a better long-term care benefit overall, because some of them don't have the limitations that the life insurance has, they are so expensive. And you're right. If you just invested it with Julia Rubenstein, you probably, you know, have more money than you know what to do with to pay for these things. You would, but again, I'm, I'm being realistic. Let's use $5,000. If someone gave me $5,000 a year for 30 years, yeah. they would see it. They'd know they have it. So they would That's right. elsewhere or That's they right. would, Right, right. They would spend it. So it's it's, it's right. a great for savings. And look, my friend admits they, his parents would not have had it right now. And now yes. they have enough to pay for 24 hour, seven day a week care. Very nice. Beautiful. Beautiful. To get it. So it's not worth it. it, but it's worth it now. Yes. I, I love that. That's great. Right. Um, well, listen, it was great having you on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Got to do it again. I know I'm going to get a lot of calls from my clients asking what's the best way to get a hold of you. Yeah. So a few things. If people want to schedule a consultation, they can email scheduling at elderneedslaw.com or visit elderneedslaw.com and fill out a form and we'll get back to you. There's, I got my phone number on the, uh, on the sheet over there, 786-756-8169. That's just a general central scheduling. That's good statewide. If people aren't interested in talking to me now, but they want more information, um, I wrote a book that's available on Amazon that's called How to Get Medicaid to pay for some or all of your long-term care expenses. Okay. And I have a very uh, popular YouTube channel, which is just YouTube slash at Elder Needs Law, where I answer people's very specific questions and try to get out very practical, good information. There's no marketing to it, meaning the marketing is, here's my phone number if you want to call me, but otherwise I'm trying to get out really good, useful, practical information. Perfect. You know, one question I forgot to ask you, which I love to ask. So with all the success you've had, what's your biggest challenge going forward? 
Business, professionally or personally? Professionally. (laughs) Right now, I would say I'm grateful that our people really are getting my message because whether it's in my videos, I write a lot of articles. So, so people, or I, I have a lot of speaking engagements. So people are finding me. And what's happening is we're getting something like 60 to 70 calls a day. And a lot of people are, they're people who we can't help. They're people who think we're Medicaid and they're wondering where their card is. They're people who think that, you know, they're, they're just, we're being inundated with calls that we can't serve. So it's really an intake issue where we have to sift through all these messages and find the people who really do need our help. And we try to get back to everybody. And even if we can't help them, we want to get them to the right resource where they can get the help that they need. So we, I give out, we give out a ton of free information all the time and we're happy to do it but it is a challenge and so we're trying to we're working our way through that i think that's a good challenge to have though yeah yeah it is but it, you know, sometimes people go i filled out a form i didn't hear for you from two days and i go i'm so sorry please you know we're, we're trying to get to, we just have a massive amount of information coming our way so that's why i say please email if you call us directly or you email the scheduling at elderneedslaw.com that that gets you right to right right to someone who can address your needs right away all right, well, Jason, thank you very much. And again, any listener that needs some help in paying bills at hospitals and doctors, please feel free to give Jason a call. Jason, yeah. thanks very much. Julian, I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Control of Your Financial Life. For more information about today's topics, please visit or check the show notes for more important information and links. Share, rate, and review this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.